Hello, it's Thursday, May 18th, and welcome to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast examining the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. I'm Bill Whalen, a Hoover Research Fellow. Joining me in studio, David Davenport, former president of Pepperdine University and a Hoover Research Fellow specializing in international law and treaties, constitutional federalism, and American politics. If the name sounds familiar, it might be because you read David Davenport's columns at Forbes.com or listen to his commentaries on the Salem Radio Network. He's also the co-author with Gordon Lloyd of Rugged Individualism, Dead or Alive. And that's our topic today, Donald Trump, Rugged Individualist, yes or no. David, great to see you. Thanks, Bill. Good to be with you. So before we answer the question all of America is waiting to know, is Donald Trump a rugged individualist? Let us first begin by defining what exactly rugged individualism is. Rugged individualism uh, really was planted in the founding of America. Uh, I think most of the founders, along with the pilgrims, the colonists, came to America because they wanted to make the decisions about their own lives. They didn't want the church, they didn't want the king and queen, they didn't want the social class they were born into making the important decisions about their lives. They wanted the freedom to make their own decisions. And so uh, this was planted, I think, deeply in our culture at the founding. Certainly the Declaration uh, declares it, if you will, life, liberty, and the pursuit of uh, happiness. The Bill of Particulars about how King George was violating people's individual rights. The Constitution is drafted in such a way as to protect our individual rights from government, from majority faction. Uh, the Bill of Rights, uh, but also the checks and balances, the separations of power, all there in the Constitution to protect individualism. The American frontier, I think, is probably what people think of when they think of the phrase rugged individualism, because from the colonies then, we, we went out across the land, and there was hardship, and, right. and there were difficulties, and wagon trains, and building huts and cabins. And uh, John Wayne and, and all of that becomes part of the mythology of rugged individualism. Um, but it was left to Herbert Hoover, interestingly, to coin the phrase. In the 1928 presidential campaign, he was just back from his food relief work in Europe and was so struck by all of the totalitarianisms that Europe was pursuing, communism, fascism, socialism. And he said, you know, thank goodness I'm back in America where we have the system of rugged individualism, people pursuing their own individual rights and freedoms, but with equality of opportunity, he always added. So that's really where the phrase was coined. And I think we've sort of had a battle since then about whether we were going to have more government regulation and decisions about our lives or right. whether we were really going to maintain a system so of Sounds sort of like that 60s phrase, freedom to do your own thing. Yeah, I think uh, don't think that's how Herbert Hoover would have said it, but perhaps <laughs> in the 60s they did. So let me ask you, Dave, if unless you watch Star Trek and you believe that space is the final frontier, there are no new frontiers to conquer in at least the continental 48 states in America. If you don't have frontiers to conquer, can you have rugged individualism? Well, that's a good question because I think historically rugged individualism does thrive on frontiers, and, and certainly that includes the Western frontier. The U.S. Census Bureau stopped counting the migration to the West in 1890, so we've not had that frontier for a good long while. But there are different kinds of frontiers, and there are new frontiers. I mean, John Kennedy in 1960 said we needed to go into outer space, that right. that was the new frontier. 
Um, a lot of young people today, I think, think of going into startups and into smaller companies and into things that they find socially important in their lives and careers. I think they think of those as new frontiers. Certainly the information age is full of new frontiers. So while I agree with the premise of your question, rugged individualism does prosper on frontiers, I think there are frontiers of various kinds. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about some of those in America today. For example, economic inequality. That would be a frontier. Um, we argue in our book that economic, that, that income inequality is an example of trying to take away individualism, not a frontier on which it's likely to be expanded. And, and uh, one of the big critiques of rugged individualism, especially starting with the progressives and the New Deal, was to reduce it to something purely economic mm -hmm. and to attack it and to bash it because as, as Roosevelt liked to say, Federal, uh, Franklin Roosevelt liked to say, those economic royalists uh, on Wall Street in New York are always trying to put down the forgotten man, as right. Roosevelt put it. Um, and so really this sort of economic argument that we have to equalize people's income or that we have to regulate the economic royalists more thoroughly and more carefully, those are really ways in which the government, I think, has tried to inhibit individual freedom, mm -hmm. um, maybe for good reasons, but I don't think it's been friendly at all to rugged individualism. So I think the, the income inequality debate uh, is not going to be helpful to rugged uh, individualism. And, what about public education? Well, now we're getting somewhere, I think, because uh, you probably saw yesterday they sort of leaked uh, a draft of Trump's proposed education budget. Right. And he's proposing, at least as of this week, to say we're going to spend a lot less money on some of the traditional K-12 public education programs, and instead we're going to invest that money in charter schools uh, and, and vouchers and opportunities for people to choose. Well, I mean, if he really does that, that is going to increase individual choice and individual freedom. Partly, I think it's a declaration of defeat, that government really hasn't figured out how to do K-12 education right. well. Mm -hmm. And partly it's a declaration of, uh, let's give people some of their money back and let them make the, the choices about their education. Right, what about public universities? Now you happen to be the president of a very nice private university. We can have another conversation about why for God's sakes you ever left Malibu, but that's another conversation for another day. But we're sitting not too far from a very large public university across the San Francisco Bay, which has had very serious problems with free speech. And you see this happening across America on the campuses of public schools and some private schools too, where individualism, individual expression, if you want to call it that, specifically conservatives voicing their, their minds, they get shouted down. Yeah, we, in, in the final chapter of our book, we give some reasons to be optimistic about the future of in, rugged individualism and some reasons to be pessimistic. Mm -hmm. And we say that, that really the whole, if you will, coddling of young people is a reason to be pessimistic, that we aren't raising young people in a lot of our families today to go out and find themselves and do their own thing and stand up for themselves. Right. We coddle them at home. We're helicopter parents in school and in college sort of hovering over them. We're texting. We're in constant contact. When they get to campus, we want them to have safe spaces. Uh, we want them not to hear trigger words. We want them to not be subject to microaggressions in the classroom. 
you know, all of these kind of coddling protective things, uh, I think, are really contrary to developing a spirit of rugged individualism. And I, I think that's a, a reason to be concerned about right. the future of individualism. Then thirdly, David, government. Um, a government which in the past has offered 40 acres and a mule. A uh, government which has offered mining claims so people can go out and literally strike it rich if they want to. Government which has stood out of the way and let people start a business and maybe, you know, try to ease the copyright process, the regulatory process. Is government a friend or foe right now in the idea of rugged individualism? Well, I think, I think it's been largely a foe, at least since the New Deal. The New Deal in the 1930s really made the federal government a much stronger presence in our lives, a much stronger presence in terms of regulation, of, of economic and social matters, uh, built the modern presidency. Uh, and, and I think, you know, I, as I mentioned earlier, one of the primary reasons people came to this country was so that the king and queen wouldn't be making all the decisions about their lives. Well, I think Washington has supplanted the king and queen in some ways because we send more and more of our money to Washington and they make more and more of the decisions about how to spend it and how to regulate us. And so um, I think government, I think Ronald Reagan had it about right when he said in his first inaugural, government is not the solution to our problems. Government is the problem. And uh, I, I think if we can diminish government's role, if we can send power back to the states, um, those are all moves in favor of individualism. I'm not going to ask you if individualism, rugged individualism is dead or alive because people will not buy the book if you give them the answer. I want them to buy the book. But let's ask the question differently, David. Is rugged individualism dead or alive with the man currently in the White House? We're currently about to leave on a foreign trip. Is Donald Trump a rugged individualist? Well, um, you know, I think he personally may well be a, a rugged individual. Oh, he certainly, well, he certainly doesn't follow the crowd, if you will. He has sort of carved out his own life and his own career, uh, his own lifestyle. Um, uh, I think the harder question, though, is whether he's going to promote policies that encourage rugged individualism. Right. What we don't know, I think, among many things we don't know about Donald Trump, would be whether he is going to return power to individuals and to states and to cities and local governments, or whether he turns out to be a big government Republican who really would like to use federal power for maybe different purposes than, say, a President Obama did, right. um, but nevertheless is pretty enamored of the power uh, of the federal government. And, you know, some of his appointments, uh, he's appointed some people who have spent their careers largely fighting the federal government. And even some of his policy ideas could be friendly toward greater individualism. But I think the jury is still out on that. Jury's out. Did he campaign as a rugged individualist? You know, um, again, he campaigned as a character. I mean, right. I guess that's part of, of well, the that's mythology. A, that's, a, that's, a, that's a good point to raise. So as we use this phrase, okay, Teddy Roosevelt keeps coming to mind. Right. For several reasons. Well, first of all, the way the man lived his life. Right. I mean, the physical aspects to Teddy Roosevelt. Um, you know, being you know, being a man, you know, going out in the West and being physically active and right. and just being full of brio and charging up hills and wars and all of that. My God, if that's not rugged, what is? You can then translate Teddy Roosevelt into how he governed in terms of building the great white fleet and being the trustbuster and so forth. Rugged, rugged policy. So I guess maybe TR to me would be at the pantheon in this. But you're suggesting that maybe it's not just a physical act here because Donald Trump is not Theodore Roosevelt on all levels. We can agree on that. I don't see him out no. riding horses. Mar-a-Lago is not Wyoming. <laughs> that is correct. <laughs> but but you're suggesting there's something just more to 
the physical side of this in terms of putting on a cowboy hat and kind of showing that I look like the Marlboro Man. You're suggesting that it's not just style, but it's actually deeds. Sure, and I, and I do think Ronald Reagan would be the, the, modern, the modern icon. Um, obviously, he chopped his wood and rode his horses and wore his cowboy hat. But more than that, he understood that the relationship between individuals and government needed to change. Mm -hmm. And he said very clearly, he said, you know, government only works because of the consent of the people. And he said, I think our government has really grown beyond what people have consented to. Um, And so we need to change that balance. Now, on the policy side, he found that much more difficult than he expected. I mean, he did affect some tax cuts. He did move some money and power from the federal government to state capitals. But by and large, especially once he had a Democratic Congress, uh, it was pretty hard to make big changes in the size and scale and scope of of government. At this point, we don't know if Donald Trump even wants to do that. I mean, he's not talking that talk, really, of of, let's restore power to, to you, the people. Uh, uh, he, sa- he, he acknowledges that government isn't really serving what he calls the forgotten men and women very well. But again, he doesn't say what he wants to do about that. Right. Now, in your book, you talk about a concern with the young generation, kids growing up, millennials and so forth, about whether or not rugged individualism was lost with them. And what do you see this in? You see this in terms of helicopter parenting. You see this in terms of kids who you know, they go to Saturday soccer games and everybody gets a participation trophy and you go to college, your school, and you're treated like a snowflake, to use that phrase. Everybody's treated the same. Everybody is special. You graduate from college and it's perfectly acceptable to go back home and live with the parents for a few years out of the basement, use the Wi-Fi, you get covered with health care, all is good. But you would contend that this comes at a price for society. Indeed. And, you know, I think one of the things that's really tough in making this case to the younger generation and of course, I've been in education, college education, almost my whole career. Right. I have three children who are in that 20, 30 something range. Um, I think individual liberty has largely become an, an abstraction to a lot of young people. Mm-hmm. They have always lived with big government throughout their lives. They don't really see why government is such a problem because they don't know anything different. And the, the idea of individual liberty, it, it, it becomes abstract to them. So. For example, when, when my boys realized that their health insurance policy that they were paying for uh, was going to be illegal mm-hmm. because it required pregnancy coverage in order to be legal. Well, Dad, we're not going to get pregnant. We don't need pregnancy coverage. Well, boys, you know, this is a liberty moment. You know, right. you're not free to buy the policy that you want or need. You have to buy the policy that the federal government says you must have. Right. When the mayor of New York says you can't buy a 16-ounce soda, but you can buy two 8-ounce sodas or whatever the numbers were, you know, again, young people kind of sit up and say, well, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. I said, well, yeah, it's not just dumb government policy, but it's also a limitation on your freedom. You should decide what size Coke you want to buy and drink. So I, I kind of look for in dealing with young people these liberty moments, if you will, where right. they can see for themselves that their individual freedoms can be threatened and are threatened by the government. But those are those are abstractions to them that need to be made more tangible and real, I would say. You know, David, I was watching uh, the Republicans thrash about with Obamacare repeal, and it was pointed out during the debate, uh, the vote, that for the past 80 years or so, we've been creating government programs. And the federal government has a habit of creating government programs does not abolish the government programs. Uh, One notable exception in terms of actually reforming or fixing a government program would be welfare reform. 
which actually the federal government went after in the 1990s with a lot of states' participation. But otherwise, going back to Franklin Roosevelt, we've created a lot of government, and it doesn't go away, despite all we talk about it. Now, when welfare was addressed, welfare became not just a government issue, David, but a large social issue. Why? Because it was talked about, uh, my old boss, Pete Wilson, former governor of California, used to use the phrase social pathology. And he talked about welfare, not just about a government problem, but a symptom of a larger disease, such as fatherless kids, such as the perverse incentive of having more children so you can get a larger check from the government and so forth. So it was addressed really from that angle, at least here in California, in terms of a social cure, not just a government fix, but also a social fix. But if you're Donald Trump, David, what programs do you go after along those lines? What do you think he can actually go after? And how should he address them if he wants to invoke this larger idea of rugged individualism? Well, uh, I mean, for starters, I think he could uh, reduce expenditures of the federal government, which I think right. he may well do. When government grows and takes over more money in power, it leaves less money in power for individuals. Right, but I'm asking this because it seems to be when the Republicans started going down this road with Obamacare, there was a fierce pushback. Oh, yes. In terms of how can you do this and how can you do that? It was put on very human terms. And Trump did not have the gumption. Republicans didn't have the gumption. Right. Maybe politically you can't get away at this day. But nobody stood up and said, well, wait a second. Maybe if you're 26 years old, you shouldn't be getting your parents' health care. Maybe you right. should be out on your own or things like that. Right. In other words, nobody said, you know, darn it. Gotta, you know, gotta pull yourself up I, by your own boots. You know, I think, I think the approach that, that Trump and the Republicans should take is that a safety net may be appropriate, mm -hmm. but we don't have to build a whole government system for everyone on every issue. So a safety net for health care might be viable, but we don't need to federalize health care and put everybody on the same system. What we argue for at the end of our book is not that rugged individualism push uh, the forgotten man out the window, right. but we say there ought to be room at the table when policy is being made to help both the forgotten man and the rugged individual. Mm -hmm. um, this was actually done in, in Roosevelt's day when Social Security was adopted. Social Security was at the time to be a safety net and other pension and retirement plans were very much viable. Now Social Security is more of an entitlement than a safety net. Right. Um, the same was even done with Medicare in the 1960s. Room was left for employers and individuals to have their own health care, and Medicare was to be a safety net for senior medical care. But again, now it's become the system. Right. So the idea of safety nets for the forgotten man makes sense, but once we start turning them into federal systems, mm -hmm. those systems haven't been very successful. The welfare system the K-12 education system. These big government systems, I think most of us acknowledge, aren't very successful. Right. But it seems at many a time, David, you get into this question of, all right, you want to reform the government program, you're going to have to reform culture at the same time. For example, let's say that you want to improve education in inner cities in America. Well, it's not just putting more money into the inner city schools or making sure the schools get more money for physical needs or get better teachers. You also have to go to parents and say, you know, Give your kids breakfast so they don't go to school hungry or make sure your kid does the homework. And this is the what puzzles me about this, what I'm curious about since you've written on this topic now. How does government, how does a president who has a considerable bully puppet, how do political leaders try to change American culture? Well, I'm not sure the political leaders are the ones to do that. Well, I with, think with politics at a very low ebb in America it would seem they're, they're not you know, suited to this. I'm also not sure though in this day and age who actually has the institutional confidence to do this, but again. How are you going to change people's behavior in this country? Yeah. No, I, I mean, I, I, as I grow older, I, I've come more and more to think that 
if you focus just on government, you're focusing on the short term and the shallow, right. that the real changes we need are cultural changes throughout uh, the country. Right. And those are, those are only going to happen with parents and with churches and with schools. Um, to me, civic education is now a huge issue. And if we had a better understanding about how our government and the economy work, I think people might make different decisions. Um, I think we need to do more education retraining for the new economy, for example. I think that would be a productive change for inner cities. Mm -hmm. we, we currently even have a tax system that kind of disincentivizes retraining. So to me, the solutions are, you know, at the bottom, at the base, a safety net. And then I think they are incentives and encouragement to individuals, families, churches, uh, cities, regions, to take responsibility of keeping their own side of the street clean, if you will. Right. Uh, I think that's, that's the kind of revival it will take. I think that's not likely to be led by the U.S. Congress. The president does have a bully pulpit, right. which Reagan used, I think, pretty well, as did Teddy Roosevelt. Right. I don't know that Trump is that kind of rugged individual. This is individual. what I'm curious about because Trump is not terribly popular. He is divisive. People either like him or they don't like him. There's not much room in between. Congress is less popular. You can argue maybe governors around America, certain places are more popular. But, you know, one thing we saw in the last election, David, was we at all times kept looking for that person who was kind of above the fray, the way Colin Powell was back in 1995, 1996, when people thought, boy, would it be great if Colin Powell ran because Colin Powell is just so much better than everything else in the political system. We kept looking for that in this last election. You know, Jim Mattis, our former colleague here at Hoover, people wanted Jim Mattis to run because Jim Mattis is kind of above the system. I'm not sure in America, though, right now, Dave, who is above the system right now because I look around and I see our political system. I see sports, I see religion, entertainment, all of these various institutions in America where maybe people look for role models and leadership, and boy, just each one seems to be just chock full of problems right now. Yeah. Um, you may not like my answer to this uh, question, and you know a lot more about campaigns than I do, so you, uh -huh. you're, you're free to correct me okay. if you need freedom from me. Um, I think we're living under what I call the curse of Karl Rove in this country. And I, 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 I don't mean that in a personal way. Interesting. Do, do explain it. Yeah. I, I, think, I think part of our current problem in our political system, and it changes all the time, mm -hmm. is that camp, presidential campaigns and then therefore the governing that happened after the campaign – tended to be about reaching the middle of the country. Right. So you might have 40% Republican, 40% Democrats. And I would say in the modern era, 1950s, 1960s, 1970s, even a little bit into the 80s, um, the idea was, you know, as, as Nixon famously said, you, I had to run to the right in the primary to get the nomination, and then I had to run to the center because that's where I would win the general election. Correct. Karl Rove changed that system with uh, overseeing George W. Bush's two presidential campaigns by saying, in effect, well, we, well, there's another way to win a campaign, and that is by energizing your base and turning out your right, base. base election. And those are the kinds of campaigns we've had since 2000. Mm -hmm. We have had people, including Donald Trump, who have not run to the center, who have not tried to kind of bring the thoughtful people to bear, but instead have said, I can now do targeted marketing because of the internet. I can reach people who believe in what I have to say. I can make them passionate. I can fire them up. Those are, and unfortunately, those are ugly campaigns. 
And now we've continued to govern in that same way. Right. We, we, the only, frankly, the only thing that's been accomplished this year in Washington has either been by an executive order by the president or a party line vote. Right. You know, we're not trying to talk to the other side. We're not trying to get thoughtful people and thoughtful policies. So that's where I think we're stuck right now. And I don't know if a single individual might pull us out of this. As you say, maybe the hero comes forth from some unexpected quarter, whether somebody will try to win an election again by speaking to the center. But I think we're stuck right now with the curse of Karl Rove. Well, it's either The Rock, if you look at polls right now, uh, the actor, The Rock, the pro wrestler, uh, maybe he's, he saves us. I thought Tom Brady was the answer, but apparently he's been hiding <laughs> concussions. So, hey, let's get a special prosecutor and investigate that little cover up. But, uh, no, it's interesting. So you mentioned Karl Rove. Uh, I think, first of all, Bill Clinton may have been the last person to run for office and win crossing the stream, if you will. Right. Clinton made a gamble in 1992, Dave, in which he defied a lot of his party orthodoxy on issues like capital punishment. Correct. Wanted to give tax cut for the middle class. Right. And he supported welfare reform. And said and the era of big government is over. Said the era of big government <laughs> over. Now he did. I know people listening to this may be screaming already saying, wait a second, about Clinton. He did have to be kicked, you know, dragged kicking and screaming on welfare reform. The Republicans have to put it in front of him three times before he signed it. But he did it. He crossed the stream. Now, you mentioned Karl Rove. What was interesting about the Bush 43 presidency was he comes in and he is starting down an interesting road in his first few months in office. And he's talking about faith-based initiatives, which to me was always an interesting way about trying to get religion involved right. in communities and trying right. to pull people up that way. He worked with Ted Kennedy, of all people, right. on education reform. But then along came something called 9-11. Right. And 9-11 not only took down some buildings in New York, it also really took down George W. Bush's domestic agenda as well. He became a foreign well, policy president. And the idea of George Bush doing things which weren't necessarily seen as normal for a conservative Republican, they vanished. Right. No, his, it, it reminds me of Herbert Hoover's presidency. I mean, Hoover was always one of the youngest and the best and the brightest at everything he did. Right. And then once the Depression hit, it be, has became an emergency presidency. And so all bets were off. The normal way of presiding was gone. I think the same thing happened to George W. Bush. I think he campaigned, as you say, as a compassionate conservative. Right. He had a reputation of working with both sides of the aisle as governor of Texas. And then after 9-11, all bets were off. Now, you can argue whether he needed to go quite as far as he did in, in, in doing that. But I think it's fair to say his became an emergency presidency. I'm assuming you're not putting Barack Obama in the category of rugged individualist. No, but he, in fact, he talked about it a couple of times in speeches when he Did was he? president. Yep. He acknowledged the that rugged individualism was in our DNA, he said, but it doesn't work. <laughs> it's kind of like it's outdated. So in fact, earlier in our book, we have a grid uh, that people can look at. It says, it's it's very simple grid. It's Rugged individualism, dead or alive, right. good or bad. Mm -hmm. And you have people in all those boxes. So Barack Obama thinks it's alive and it's in the DNA of America, but that that's a bad thing. Right. Uh, of course, Gordon Lloyd and I, the co-authors of the book, thinks, think it's barely alive, but the fact that it is alive is a good thing and we'd like to nourish it. So yeah. no, Obama would not be a, a rugged individual. He, he, he was a social engineer. And, and wanted to use uh, the economy and, and the, the economic crisis to do social engineering. He didn't get very far except for healthcare, but healthcare is big. Right. Now, we are uh, only 100 days and a couple of weeks into this man's presidency. 
Um, and let's put aside the talk about impeachment and who will be the president come 2020. But the 2020 presidency, uh, the presidential race is already underway, Dave, in some respects. The Democrats had a cattle show just the other day. Uh, Center for American Progress invited Democrats to come out and talk. And so people who were angling toward 2020 came out and they gave their presentation. And this was Elizabeth Warren. I don't know if Bernie Sanders did it. Cory Booker, uh, the very attractive senator from New Jersey, uh, came and gave a talk. Kamala Harris, the newly elected senator from California, gave a talk. These are people offering their vision. They're kind of testing the waters for 2020. You follow politics. You follow the Republicans. You follow the Democrats. Will there be a Democrat running for office in 2020, David Davenport, who will embrace or in some way embody rugged individualism? Well, as, as my friends remind me, I've predicted that Hillary Clinton would win three of the last two presidential campaigns. So my, my record of predicting yeah, is... You're like me. I spent the post-election kind of running a magnet over my computer. <laughs> right. Trying to go on to Forbes and other places where I write with you and just trying to kill things. Exactly. <laughs> uh, so I'm probably not the best uh, to respond to that. Um, I, I do think uh, that Hillary Clinton is sort of the end of a of a generation, if you will. Right. I, I don't see, uh, even though he might like to, I don't see Joe Biden running. I don't see Al Gore running. I don't see Hillary Clinton running. So I think we are going to have maybe a new generation of, of Democrats. Um, and, and some of those are kind of rugged individuals. Again, they don't promote an individual agenda in their policies. But, you know, a Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, they they sort of break the mold, if you will. But but their policies are are not in favor of individualism. They're in favor of more and more collectivism. Yeah, Cory Booker is interesting because if you look at his career, Dave, he's like software. Maybe that's fitting for a guy who went to Stanford. Uh, he's had various you know, 102030 versions of himself. And I think he's on about a 30 version right now. But that 10 version of Booker, who came here to Hoover Institution and talked a few times, he was the mayor um, of Newark at the time. And he might have been a rugged individualist in the regard of he was taking on problems headlong in his city and was trying to encourage people to, you know, be responsible for their actions and all that. I think he has since decided that the road to greater riches means to be a little more conformist as a Democrat. But at one point, I think, at one point, I think he got it. Yeah, and ironically, I mean, I, I guess I wrote the book on rugged individualism, so it, it shouldn't be shocking if that's the track my thinking is on. Mm -hmm. But Cory Booker talked about rugged individualism in his big speech to the Democratic Convention last right. year. And he said uh, uh, something. He said, I respect rugged individualism, then proceeded to attack it, and, and said, but rugged individualism didn't get us to the moon and didn't defeat the British and didn't, you know, create the human genome. Um, and, and, of course, the, the problem is that Rugged individualism doesn't mean you don't ever collaborate or cooperate or participate in group efforts, but you do it out of your own consent. Right. You decide you want to be in a wagon train or you want to build a house together or you want to be in a church or a nonprofit. But what Cory Booker and Barack Obama and others want is they want the government mandating. They, they aren't looking for more individual freedom and consent and cooperation. They're looking for more government mandates. So... I don't see them as very friendly to individualism. Is the war on terror an exercise in rugged individualism? And I'm asking because, on the one hand, this is people putting their lives on the line. This is people being daring and fighting people overseas. These are people being bold uh, in a way that you and I are not. On the other hand, it's a military exercise. It's a, it's a team effort, if you will. It's driven by government and government funding. Which camp do you put it in? Well, that's, I mean, it's a hard one. I would yeah. say that people around the world still view America and the military as, as a good reason for this as sort of a cowboy culture, if you will. And so 
you know, the Europeans like to picture themselves as the diplomats of the world and America right. is the army of the world or the cowboys of the world. So I think our reputation around the world is still one of rugged individualism. Right. Um, and and that, I, I think that's part of the reason for it. So in foreign policy, maybe, we are more faithful to our rugged individualism roots than we are in our own domestic policy in this country. I think you see this when the warrior comes off the plane in an airport. He's a rugged individualist, the man who fights in combat, the woman who fights in combat. They're rugged, if you will. One thing which I'm curious about, though, Dave, is pop culture. I look at our movies, for example, right now. Uh, you and I grew up in eras when leading men were the likes of Gary Cooper John Wayne, just tough guys, guys who would go into a bar and slug somebody, and they were typically loners, and, you know, there's always some woman chasing after them, but they'd ride off, Shane come back, and things like that. Um, I don't see too many rugged individualists in today's culture, unless you want to talk about maybe Rambo, but Rambo was 30 <laughs> years ago. Schwarzenegger movies, those are now 20 and 30 years ago. Maybe some Tom Cruise movies, if you will, or things where they're action heroes still, but it doesn't seem like Hollywood is churning out a romance, if you will, celebrating that rugged individualist. No, I, I, I mean, I think you're right. I wanted to bring up Clint Eastwood, but I'm sure, you, you know, you could marginalize him in terms of age as well. Well, Clint produces now more than he stars, but, you know, right. Clint, Clint's a great example, though. Sure, yeah? sure. Um, no, I think, in fact, again, in our book, one of the things we point out is that rugged individualism can be encouraged or discouraged by government policy. Mm -hmm. It can also be encouraged or discouraged in the realm of intellectual ideas, income inequality, education policy. All of those things have an effect on individualism. And they can also be encouraged or discouraged by culture. Right. And the sociologists these days, by and large, view American uh, individualism as a kind of selfishness. Mm -hmm. uh, I know this is not the movies that you brought up, but, right. but in the realm of books, you have Robert Putnam's Bowling Alone. You have Robert Bella's Habits of the Heart. These are sociologists who are arguing that we become too selfish and we're not participating civically the way that we should. Right. But of course, if you look at the evidence, nobody in the world does more philanthropy than Americans. Nobody mm -hmm. in the world forms more churches and nonprofits and so forth. And yes, I don't belong to a bully league anymore yeah. and never did actually, but, <laughs> but there are other ways that we ex express ourselves. Right. So I, I like what Francis Fukuyama said, one of our fellow uh, Stanford scholars here, Fukuyama said, you know, Americans may be anti-statist, mm -hmm. but they're not selfish. Right. So we don't really like the government doing everything and telling us what to do. But on the other hand, we're not selfish people. We are still out there actively participating. Mm -hmm. So you, there are still some feel-good stories and movies yeah. about, about people who have made it over obstacles. And, and you, there are movies like that, and there are real-life stories like that about people who are to riches. There are a lot of people making money and being famous off of just being, being famous people. <laughs> you know, Kardashians and real housewives and people like that. And people are making money off of just being hot messes, if you will. The opposite of the rugged individualist. People who just lives are just are just a wrecking ball. Yeah. I think people watch that out of curiosity, perhaps. Yeah. But I, I do think that there are still plenty of inspirational stories out there about mm -hmm. rugged individuals. And they're mostly not movie stars. They're mostly just kind of ordinary, everyday people, right. but who had a moment, an opportunity to demonstrate what they were made of and, you know, came to the rescue of a neighbor, came to the rescue of their family uh, and overcame obstacles in order to, you know, have an impressive career as a doctor or a, 
a scientist and so forth. And and those stories still exist also in American business. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, they are, they're all billionaires, but I mean, the the, the Bill Gates, Steve Jobs stories, uh, the the Ubers and Lyfts, the, I mean, there are plenty of corporate stories of people who just kind of went out and invented a new business, if you will, and uh, overcame long odds. So, so it's you, out there. It so just would, may not so be in would, Hollywood. So you would put... Steve Jobs' this category, you put Zuckerberg in this category, you put Jeff Bezos in this category. Yeah, and, and it raises, too, though, one of the ironies, which is just like young people who in their social media lives and in their business lives are more interested in individualism than some prior generations, but they don't see the political connection. Right. They also say, you know, in these polls and surveys, they're more interested in socialism. Well, you know, there's a connection between the kind of government that that allows you to have individualism in your social media and business lives mm-hmm. and one that doesn't. And I think the same is true of some of these Silicon Valley pioneers. I think it's ironic that they were rugged individuals in their own lives and businesses. But then when they vote and, and decide what political candidates, they want collectivism. They don't want the sort of individualism that propelled their own success. So, right. so you, I can't entirely account for that. So you can wear a T-shirt and a hoodie and eat a lot of sushi and live in Palo Alto but still be a rugged individualist. That's what you're saying. I'd like to think so I, since I live near here. <laughs> <laughs> so – uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but perhaps the last two rugged individualist presidents we've had were Ronald Reagan and John Kennedy. Now, again, Kennedy, I keep getting hung up on the cowboy idea. John Kennedy, obviously, Mr. You know, Mr. Ivy League, cool. But John Kennedy, obviously, using the phrase new frontier. That is the David Davenport paradigm. This man talked about conquering a frontier. Reagan, for reasons we just said. John Kennedy comes in office, David, at a sleepy point in American history the end of the 50s and the Eisenhower years, and he's talking a generational appeal, and it's time to get up and go and seize things. Vigor, as he would say, vigor. Ronald Reagan comes along at a very hard time in American history, a time when America is very much at a crossroads in terms of its standing in the world, its economic conditions at home, and again, it's an idea of let's get up and go. Does this suggest, David, that that rugged individualism is a matter of the moment, or could we make the counter-argument that it's the man that makes the moment? Well, of course, we're, we're looking at the top line, uh, that is, the people that you read about in the newspapers and you see on television. Right. And I think rugged individualism is really more a story, uh, bottoms up, if you will. Mm-hmm. And so I think really you do have to go into to churches and into nonprofits and into businesses uh, to find where rugged individualism is really at work. And I think the point is, Mostly, we just need these people in Washington or even Sacramento to quit taking power and money away from us so that we can be rugged individuals. I I don't know that we really need Washington to make us into rugged individuals. We just need to keep them from preventing us from doing no harm, if you will, to rugged individualism. And uh, so I I guess I'm a little less focused on the, the Washington types and I'm a little more focused on empowering uh, people more locally. And, and there, you know, Trump, the Trump budget, I think, has been treated a little unfairly. Uh, 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 Trump, the, one of the great philosophical questions of the ages is, what should government do and not do? And so in Trump's budget, he's asking some of those basic questions. You know, should right. government be in the entertainment and media business? You know, should it be running all of public education uh, and welfare? I mean, those are fair, legitimate questions, which, as you pointed out, it's hard to get a hearing for those It is. Days. And what's fascinating, Dave, is, again, it gets back to Obamacare. And if he's going to cut education to anything else, the moment you cut a government program, you know this very well, 
people scream bloody murder. And Democrats are very good at putting these things in human terms. It's one thing Republicans struggle with. Republicans are great talking principles and statistics and trends and so forth, but we really stink at talking about flesh and blood, which is where Democrats no, you're right. circles are uh, at. So, so the question is going to be, David, if Donald Trump is serious about instilling this virtue into government, which means reducing government, is he going to stand his ground when the chorus, the very angry chorus in Washington says, you can't do this. Yeah. You can't put people on the street. You can't starve children. You can't do X. You can't do Y. You can't do Z. Well, of course, the, I mean, the fact of the matter is he can stand his ground if he wants, but he has to have congressional approval right. to get it done. Right. Uh, as Senator Lamar Alexander, even as fellow Republican, reminded them, it's, you know, it is the Congress that makes appropriations. It's not the president. So, and, and, and uh, you know, if he really stood his ground, he probably would have a Ronald Reagan-like experience in the sense that Reagan did a lot rhetorically, I think, to reset the relationship between government and the people, but he found policy was much harder to do. And, and I think Trump would find the same thing. That, so you're suggesting that it's not just Donald Trump. You also have to find 218 Republicans <laughs> and 51 Republicans in the Senate willing to also be rugged individuals. Um, I am afraid that's the case. If if we want to win on the policy front. Exit question. You and I are sitting here a year from now talking about rugged individualism, and we're talking about progress. Define modest progress, a kind of progress that will make Devin Davenport happy with the Trump administration. <laughs> well, Give me a minimum of one, two, or three things he has to do just to get a passing grade with you. Well, I do think tax reform is promising. I mean, I think if he wants to send right. more money back into people's pockets and let them make decisions. Which unfortunately looks like a 2018 issue now. I, but, I understand. Yeah. But so tax simplification, tax okay. reform, I think is a good one. Um, he seems to be ready to make some experiments in education that I think, you mm -hmm. know, are experiments that would be worth making. I think he could, like Reagan, return some power and money to the states that's not quite getting it back to me, right. but it's moving in the right direction. Those would be three things I'd love to see. Mm -hmm. And you think that's doable? I do. I'm not willing to bet the farm that it will happen. <laughs> well, let's get together a year from now and see what happened. All right. Very good. David Davenport, great talking to you. Thank you. You've been listening to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast on the policy avenues available to the 45th president of the United States. If you've been enjoying Area 45, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. And tell your friends about us. We want this to grow. You can find the Hoover Institution online at www.hoover.org. While you're there, do yourself a favor and sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, which delivers the best work of Hoover's relos, certainly including David Davenport, straight to your inbox every business day. <clears throat> also, while on Hoover's site, you can purchase a copy of Rugged Individualism via Hoover's website. Why should Jeff Bezos have all the fun? <laughs> you can find the Hoover Institution on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's at Hoover I-N-S-T. David Davenport is not on Twitter. Is that right, Dave? That is correct. I bailed early. You're a bright man. <laughs> but he does have his own domain, and that is www.daviddavenport.com. You could go there and see what he has been writing of late. Anything else I need to plug? No, I appreciate that. Thank you. Very good. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Area 45. Next up, Obamacare repeal and replacement. You don't want to miss that. Until then, take care. As always, thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.